0: we are going to have a very interesting discussion around organisational cultures in elite sport, power relations that operate in these environments, and the implications that these have for personal and collective meanings of sport. I'm delighted to have Dr. Niels Federsen from the Norwegian University of Science and Technology discussing with me today. Niels completed his PhD work at Liverpool John Moores University, and currently he holds a postdoctoral researcher position. His research has explored organizational culture, culture change, and power relations in elite sport organizations, which will be the focus of today's discussion. Currently, he is also working in a very exciting project that explores recreational exercise activities as a lifestyle intervention for people with stress, anxiety, and depression. And that will be the focus of the second part of our discussion. So let's get started. And and first of all, a warm welcome to the podcast, Niels.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me on. I hope I can do it justice.
0: (laughs) Yeah, really a pleasure to have you. And and we had like really wonderful conversations the time we were both at uh, Liverpool John Moores University. We were there for about two years at the same time. I was doing Mm. my postdoc work and you were in the middle of your PhD work at that point. And I think it will be very exciting now that a little time has passed to hear your reflections on that work that um, you were at that time in the middle of the heat, so to say, and now you can reflect back and, and think about it uh, from a yeah. little distance. Yeah. So I think first let's just delve into those things and, and ideas around organizational culture and culture mm. change. So those are like really uh, hot words and topics in in sports psychology, for example. And and those concerns really uh, stem from some like practical observations from the real world of sport. So maybe mm. a broad starting question, why are we now focusing on understanding organizational cultures and culture change in in the world of elite sport?
1: That's, uh, that's such a big question.
0: Let's start from somewhere. Yeah. yeah
1: um, for one, I'd say it's probably because we've had now 10, 12 years of a few different crises or different uh, examples of toxic behaviors, um, corruption, and, and cheating in, in elite sports on a, on a, on a broad scale. Um, and I think most of the time we actually looked at organizational culture as a, as a tool to transform an underperforming team or an underperforming training group into a high performance high functioning group and and, and that 's how we 've looked at at culture for a long time, but culture is also a great way to look at some of the underpinning contextual factors that influence how people they sometimes get into conflict or sometimes carry out unprofessional or unethical behaviors in in sports. And and I think that's really the two main things that that make people focus on on culture. Um, to take the first one where we talk about the performance side, it's an incredibly attractive thing to be able to, to go and say, if you're a performance director or if you're a head coach or you're a manager coming into a football club, that, hey, I am a cultural architect, I'm a cultural um, cultural wizard, uh, for lack of better words, that you can transform a culture, you can transform a team from an underperforming team to, to go on and win the league, uh, perform at the highest level at the Olympics, um, and and that is something you can do. It's something that you have in your control and in your grasp, and and that's been it's been really attractive for a number of years. And you see the culture bit comes into plenty of research, both on developing talented athletes, and you see the athletic talent development environment work done by uh, Henriksen in. Southern Denmark, where culture is almost one of the most important underpinning items in in, in those models and the environment success factor model. Uh, and a big focus in that work has been to make it usable to people who work in in sports organizations. You also see culture work when when it's about how do you come in and how do you manage an organization if you enter as a as a performance director, um, and that is pretty much where most of the research has been in sports psychology or performance sports. But if we look a little bit wider to to maybe more sociological, anthropological approaches, there is plenty of research, uh, especially from Denmark and also the US, that that highlights issues such as from Denmark, uh, some kind of imagined sameness. It's an underpinning feature of uh, Danish society that we imagine that we're all the same, we're all the, both in terms of gender and minorities and religion and so on. Um, and also a bit more complex views of culture from, uh, from Michael McDougall and, uh, where we look more at different ways of approaching culture. Uh, so I think that was a, a long answer to why is it that we're looking at culture right now and how is it that we're looking at culture?
0: Yeah, I I think that's a really important um, thing to point out as a start that when we think about culture in sports psychology, or organizational culture, of course, we have the cultural sports psychology work, which is quite different from that. But when we Mm. think about organizations in sport, very often the starting point is about how can we make a winning culture or a more effective culture? Um, around you know achieving athletic goals, mm. but I think in your work and and other work, including Michael's work, there is this this view that culture is a lot also about meanings and and it's something that uh, that we are and and not just something that can be manipulated through some type of intervention from the outside. yeah, so if we maybe think of so one strand is really about making cultures more effective and and, uh, winning more and all those things. But the other thing is these problematic cultures or uh, you call them destructive cultures. And if we think of culture as uh, types of meanings, what are those types of meanings that are kind of featured or part of these really problematic cultures that we hear about so much in the media these days?
1: Yeah, so maybe we start with how we talk about these uh, uh, negative, maladaptive, toxic, destructive cultures. First of all, I think there is a, a general misconception in, in research before where sport is kind of thought of as special. Sport is a special arena with special rules, with special people, um, where athletes and coaches are extremely transformative, authentic Leaders and high-performing, almost human demigods, uh, and I think that's has been a fallacy in way how we look at sport. Because now we see, if we think about the mental health and the flourishing languishing work, that we can see that well, sports athletes, uh, football players, um, people who do track and field, swimmers, gymnast- gymnasts, they all experience. Anxiety, stress, depression, um, and and a whole host of different mental disorders. So Mm. a really important thing is that sport just reflects society. At least that's what I think. That it's not something special. It is just part of society. And we're all just humans who, in this part of society, excel at something physical, especially the athlete. And if you start thinking about sports as a part of society, and just reflecting society, then you're also open, uh, you're, you're making yourself open to the possibility that bullying can occur, that corruption can occur, that conflict which leads to antagonism can occur. And that really helps us look more realistically at cultures and also more realistically at, at what we expect of, of coaches and managers and leaders and heads off and athletes in terms of, of becoming uh, an elite athlete or finding meaning there. And then if we think about, are we talking about destructive cultures? Are we talking about toxic cultures? Are we talking about maladaptive? Destructive cultures is a choice that we chose very explicitly to call destructive because if you call something toxic, um, if you drop anything into something that's toxic, it will evaporate or it will uh, disintegrate. So if you put a thriving performer into something toxic, they will disintegrate. Um, and that's not what we're seeing 100%. It's it's what you see sometimes if you have very, very maladaptive organizations, I I believe. But I don't think we have any... Um, we don't have many examples of that. I think the, the closest that would be is probably the USA Gymnastics, where, of course, uh, a whole host of uh, behaviors happened around... Former um, doctor at the U.S. gymnastics national team, Larry Nassau, and you could put anyone into that, uh, especially female gymnasts, and it doesn't matter how resilient or robust. That is probably the closest we get to a toxic culture. On the other hand, I think it's 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 more helpful to look at it as as more transient, as more something that happens for a while, and it uh, and it can change. So um so what are the meanings that people are looking for i think this upper out uh system that we have in sport if you don't progress then you're you're out that really depends on some systemic power relations around um who can select an athlete who can hire or uh terminate a performance director how does a sport receive funding. um, and you can see that in some examples in in the UK, where a lot of the funding the way that funding has been has been approached has been as a boomer bust culture. You have to live up to your key performance indicators or your targets from either UK sport or Sport England. And they've been extremely focused on on medals. So if you didn't have any medals, you didn't have any funding. And if you don't have any funding, you don't have any livelihoods for Former directors, coaches, physio, psychologists, nutritionists. So, how does that systemic uh, pressure from some of these funding organisations influence the choices that people make? Uh, would that does that mean that they focus on on winning a medal, and then some athletes might become collateral damage, perhaps? But that is, that is a very important thing to look at um, how that has a big influence on, on how people act in, in some of these organizations. Um, but there's also different rationales that, that are at play of how people they behave unprofessionally or unethically. Sometimes it's, about, um, it's an in-group, out-group thing, especially if new people come into an organization and you're not from this sport. You're often seen as an encroaching act- actor. Uh, that hasn't, been, hasn't spent time in the trenches here where we are, uh, and they don't understand what we're doing because it's always been like this. So instead of accepting new ideas, uh, challenging new ideas, discussing new ideas, it can lead to, to conflict, which for a time can become destructive. But almost in every single case, my point of view is that people are good. Fundamentally good, but good people can also do bad things. So if you think about if you think about some of the coaches who have been thrown out from from sports in both Denmark and the UK or Australia, I'm pretty sure that if you ask their friends and family, they would see them as good, and they would see them as good fathers, good mothers, good uh, good parents, good sons, good daughters. So how is it? Uh, that things become destruction. It really depends on the vantage point and 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 the and the things that happened over time. Uh, it is all these little behaviors that accumulate and and can lead to instances of bullying, instances of corruption, instances of uh, other maladaptive behaviors. Um, that's probably how how I look at it from a point of view that people are fundamentally good. I'm fully aware that there are people out there who are who are not good. Take Larry Nassar as a, as, a, as a good example of that. Probably viewed by a lot of people as good if you listen to the podcast called Believed about Larry Nassar, they talk about good guy Larry for a long time. This is good guy Larry, he's a he's a good guy, he's a friend of the family, but things changed uh, in the way that people perceive him and probably more to how he actually is. Uh, a despicable human being and there are other people like that out there but in general I think people are good and that's how we should look at why destructive cultures happen. It's probably not because people they go in as an evil mastermind who has an intense hatred of everyone in the organizations and just is um up there is there to bully and uh, take money into their own pockets. See I don't think that's that's how it starts. I think it starts with escalating Uh, discussions escalating conflict lack of psychological safety and then it can lead to something we would call toxic destructive maladaptive uh, but it's only for a time and that time can be longer it could be shorter at least that's what i've seen in my phd that's probably where i would approach destructive cultures from i hope that answers most of your question
0: yeah it certainly answers and I think what is so important and what makes your work unique is that if we think of organizational culture research in in sport for example in sports psychology often we have this focus on for example how sport psychologists can work as a cultural architect to improve the environment in a sense of you know making it well functioning and successful and so forth but you are really focusing on this uh destructive culture and and I think that's like so important for us to keep in mind, and also something that is missing is we don't have a lot of case studies on you know failed uh, culture change projects. So it's not it's some would contest whether you can change the culture, and at least it's not a quick or linear process of where you go in and now you are going to make everything better and everybody's going to buy into a new culture and job is done. So I think you are lifting these very important questions about and showing this other side of uh, the problematic cultures. So I think it would be nice if you just share a few words of the PhD work, of the empirical work that you've done, and and maybe some of the findings in relation to how can we understand these uh, destructive cultures? What are these forces that lead into this kind of destructive cultures to emerge and and to be in elite sport world
1: yeah so the phd work was really very much a case study with one olympic sports organization in in the uk who in this is back in 2017 stood in front of a major change uh and that major change had been spurred on and motivated by changes to to their funding so a lot of their funding changed from uk sport to sport england and basically they had to let an entire department of high performance sport go and put in place a brand new talent development uh, environment or program or, or pathway, in a way. And and when I came into the organisation, this is summer twenty seventeen, I went in there to to look at how an organisational change, not organisational culture change, at the first at the beginning, because I also approached this with a, a very much an open mind. We're doing ethnography. I'd be with the organisation for. Just about two years, so we had plenty of time to look at all the things that, that, that moved, were in flux during the time, but also with an approach from action research, where you actually also try to help and feedback data and analysis continuously to help the organization move in a direction that they find important to them. So came into the organization in, uh, in a meeting in a coffee shop in Wimbledon in London, and it became very clear that basically everyone in the management team, they viewed that the most important thing, or the biggest failure of the past four years, had been not changing the culture of the organization. And when we started to dig a little bit deeper into what, what they thought about the col- what they thought the culture was, it was much more about how uh, athletes were selected, how coaches they actually, actually practiced their work um, how the different regions worked together in in the UK. How it was centralized or decentralized. So at the time, it was very much in London, but it changed. It became more of a decentralized system where it's where talent development happened in, in more of more different places in in the UK. Um, but that's really where we started. That was a an idea that we should change the culture and an idea that should happen through. Um, changing the organization also how they did things. And we didn't really look at values. So again, if we, if we geek out a little bit here about culture, and this is actually interesting because I have received this in a review from every single reviewer of the papers I've published on organizational culture. They all say that I'm not doing longitudinal research because they want values of an organization at time A and the values of an organization at time B. And then they want me to uh to uh to compare the two sets of values um and they would see that as longitudinal i would say that is cross cultural because you have no idea which one is time a or time b if you're being philosophical philosophical about it but it's also two different organizations as you're comparing it, organization a and organization b in a way um so instead we started looking at the processes or i looked at the processes that this undercurrent of uh, relationships and power and conflict and negotiation that happened all the time. And so how did that go awry in a way? How did that become destructive? Was two different groupings who wanted different things, if you put it very simply. On one hand, you have the national governing body who had the pressure from sport england from uk sport to live up to different key performance indicators to live up to different targets that were set before they came in and a pressure from them and a community in this sport that felt they were doing quite all right who who felt that they had been doing their sport the right way for decades even though it had been about 60 or 70 years Prior to me coming in, that they had actually won anything at the senior elite level, and still thought that it was fine to to receive money for a high performance uh, program. Although they never really, uh, if you take the strictest uh, ways of using the term, they hadn't been high performing as an organization for a long time. Um, so that's really where it started, and then the organized the, the managing group the Talent manager, the coach manager, and the rest of around the talent uh, pathway team, they started creating this new talent program with national and uh, youth national team camps uh, in London, but also in different cities around the country. Um, they also started focusing much more on having more coaches in there, um, updating the approach to coaching, which uh, some would say was a bit archaic, very old fashioned, where you'd had one coach and maybe 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 athletes following one coach and seven other coaches would stand on the sideline drinking coffee. Um so they really tried to update both the way that we that they developed athletes, the way that they coached um at the sa- at, at at the same time with changing the way that athletes were also selected. And what happened was that all of these changes, they happened really quickly. So people in the organization, in the community, who had previously been in incredibly powerful, important positions um, and had a lot to say, had a lot of influence, they pro- they suddenly felt that their influence was was being shaken in a way or their influence was being challenged by, by the new ways of doing things. And it created a sense of inertia that the faster the changes moved, the more inertia that that came into the process. And you had uh, just escalating conflicts, just little tiny conflicts. And I can tell you a story about one of the very first uh, talent camps I went to because we were sitting there after the first day and I think there were probably four or five athletes per coach which is a pretty good ratio in in this sport but the whole day had basically been the head coach leading everything and the rest of the coaches just walking around not really doing anything and there was a huge amount of dissatisfaction in the coach group because they've been brought in they wanted to to help support and deliver and but they weren't really allowed to do anything and and the coaching itself was perceived by by most in the organization as, as pretty, uh, pretty low, yeah, pretty pretty bad, not really too competent, very archaic, boring for the athletes, not engaging, a uh, lot of time spent uh, waiting around. So we sat there at the, this coaching meeting, and one of the, the assistant coaches kind of erupted a little bit, walked around like this little, um, little thundercloud that just wasn't okay the way things had happened. They had an idea of how... To change the coaching to be more modern, uh, imp- employing more pedagogy, uh, or more yeah, newer ways of learning and, and doing this sport. But, and it led to, to quite a discussion. And in the end, the head coach kind of said, OK, let's try to do some, something different tomorrow. We'll try to bring all the coaches in. And, uh, and they agreed on a plan how to do that. So we all show up the next morning and, uh, and basically the head coach had changed the entire plan to be exactly the same as the day before. So again, this coach who had erupted this little thundercloud, he, uh, he's one of the first people I I met and I don't know how, uh, how well direct I can be here, but he just said, I might as well just fuck off home. Um, because they had decided to do something else, but this was 100% an, a power play from this coach to show my way or the highway. I'm the one who controls everything. Uh, and if you don't like it, that's fine, but I'm, I'm the one in charge. And you had more examples of this where, where these head coaches who had been very influential in the past programs, they were they were saying that well, the manager's job is to make the program happen, but I'm the coach. I decide everything that happens in the coaching session. We don't really have any. Uh, um, we don't really have any. They don't really have any uh, say in in what to do. So that was just the early escalations of of conflict where influential people tried to show that they were in control and keep a hold of of the resources and their position in the organization. And that escalated from there to to more and more antagonism where at one point, almost everything that the organization did or the national governing body did, you would have overt conflict, overt um, uh, criticism, extremely aggressive criticism from... Not just coaches, but from parents who believed that the coaches were doing the right thing, and that really made everything grind to a halt. And uh, around six months into the organiza- into the process, where where some of the uh, where one of the NGB staff had to take a couple of weeks off because of some pretty Negative bullying from from one of these influential people and uh, and a lot of pressure on both the CEO of the organization but also the uh, the the manager and the rest of the the talent team so that was actually that was that was where it during those couple of weeks it, it escalated and never and became a, a destructive conflict so the conflict doesn't have to be end in a destructive thing it can also be productive but This became very much destructive about six months into it. But then things started to change uh, just uh, over the next year or so.
0: Yeah. So if I understand correctly, basically, we have a bit of a clash of almost two different cultures or we have this more traditional ideology that there are people who have been involved in the sport for a long time and there is this continuity of what has been done before and Mm. and they have a certain idea of how how things should be done versus then this new culture or new idea about coming that is felt to be coming from outside that we know how things should be done and now it has to change Mm. and so in a more amateur sport context, I I saw this um, with coaches as well in my postdoc work that I was doing at John Moores University that there were these. Older coaches who really defended this amateur ideal of having voluntary work and, you know, they had their values and their continuity of the club was really important. And on the other hand, they had more and more of these external demands on them that now you have to be also doing this, this and that. And many of the coaches were volunteers who were giving their time to something that they believed what was the cause for that club to exist and now they had these external demands from somewhere else telling that no actually you have to be doing something else from what you are doing now and so that can be a very bitter conflict as well
1: and i think just to jump on on that it's so this is where it really gets interesting if you if you're a performance director if you're a coach if you're in there the sports psychologist also working with culture that if you if everyone in the organization agrees that we need to change and can agree on some direction, it's very smooth. It's very, it, it can be smooth. There can be quite a lot of uh, unsettling. There can be a lot of stress in the organization, but it can be more towards what we've seen in other papers of changing cultures. But when things start to uh, have have mounting, escalating conflicts, it's you're not working on values or basic assumptions or artifacts or whatever you want to call it or beliefs or or tokens, or anything. You're working in between. In you're you're working in between subcultures in a bigger organization, and you're always being in that space and trying to make and see how subcultures they collide, how they uh, negotiate, how they form uh, allegiances, and and that's where if you're a really good cultural architect or a very good uh, someone who works. With culture and organizations, I'd probably say that that's where you should work. It's in between subcultures and really have a good understanding of how we can make subcultures uh, move together, at least in some kind of the same direction, mm-hmm. instead of imposing, uh, this is a new culture. Because just look, yeah. take take professional football. It happens all the time. They're expecting that there's a new manager coming in, uh, changing the entire culture and then maybe winning a couple of games, and then he's uh, let go, and the and then a new coach or a new manager comes in, and again and again, and it happens all the time in the Premier League. But none of these coaches they really survive because they they all come back to to one of the biggest issues is this inertia and um and and they're using the same tools for changing culture which sustained the previous culture. And
0: mm.
1: for that, that's the same tools are incentives, uh, targets, um, and, and regulations, rules. Um, so if you're not changing the tools, then it's really hard changing the culture sometimes.
0: And in your case study, you started talking about how the conflict is escalating and, and uh, things are getting very difficult in that organization, so if you think of mm. your time after that then you probably followed the organization after you finished your research as well have has there been a way for them to find some common common ground and work through the conflict yeah
1: oh yes it's, it's the short answer um yeah the slightly longer answer is well destructive culture started with this challenge to almost survival uh, a challenge to the way that life was in the organization then became just constant conflicts and constant criticism and discussions and, and quite maladaptive. But around that time, six months in, um, there was an even stronger focus from the very top management that we, that they needed some support to 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 move on. And this is probably where another really interesting concept comes in, which is about replaceability. Also, how is easy is it to replace? a figure, a person in an organization. So um, if if there's one or two people who are, who are being the root of a lot of, of, of conflict, how easy is, is it to remove these people? And that is something we did see. We haven't published anything on it because it's it's something that only... I was not, not too much data on it, but I think this is somewhere I would like to go in the future to actually see how easy it is it to replace a person in an organization because what we found was that uh, one of the people who who often was at the center of a lot of criticism or conflict or um, that person could not be replaced that easily and and people were reluctant to replace this person because this person was so important in the organization and uh, leading a major club, uh, long history, long history as an athlete, all in all a good guy Um, so who could and this person clashed a lot with with other another person, so which one is easiest to remove. And often it was a coach who was removed, or in one case, one of the people in in the national governing body had to had to go. But what really happened was, and instead of having negative conflicts, it became much more of a negotiation. There was room to having different uh, difference in opinion. There's much more room and much more psychological safety. So people felt that they could say their, speak their mind uh, without being bullied or berated or uh, made fun of. Um, and that actually helped quite a lot. And it, it seems so banal that those are some of the things that, that actually made things move forward. But it is sometimes just what happens between people, the relationships between people that, that make things move forward. and and being open to differences of opinion. Um, so the conflict turned into a negotiation process. So instead of being a a negative maladaptive conflict, it became more of a negotiation process where the head coaches of the different events, they started to negotiate with, with athletes, with parents, with your, with the national governing body, with the assistant coaches on how do we best develop these athletes and how do we best uh, move them forward? And that happened over time. That took a long time to do. So the next year or so became gradually more uh, at ease. Some of the other things were that the organization limited the amount of national team camps that they hosted every year. So instead of having 12, they went down to about six, which meant that clubs around the country could also host their own. Uh, training camps and thereby also sustain their own livelihoods their money and, and have some kind of income because that was also challenged by the national governing body trying to host almost uh, a national team camp a year a youth national team camp uh, a month i mean um, so in that way, you actually give opportunity, give room to to people around the country to uh, to to have some kind of livelihood. Another thing that happened was that it, this organization which was right for them was to decentralize things so not just have everything in London because that really concentrated all resource around just a couple of clubs in in the greater London area but moving some parts of the of the talent program and having talent camps in in different regions of <laughs> of the uk I'm, I'm, it's really I'm really trying to not be specific about the regions because the organization is uh um, is anonymous and confidential Um, but moving moving them out helped decentralize a lot of the resource and put resource in in more people's hands which meant that more people had influence more people had a say in how things were happening which made things a bit more democratic and less autocratic or less, less top down so it was more moved from from the regions. And that was the right thing for this organization uh, to do that at that point in time. And looking at them now, which is about two years, two and a half years after, they have received money, funding, solely based on how they support their athletes, mental well-being, and development from UK sport. So it's only focused on that. It's not focused on performance or anything. And that is a very big, uh, I think that's a, a huge testament to the people who stayed in the organization, the people who worked through this, the people who went through these destructive uh, times, but also came out on the other side. Uh, brilliant, brilliant work uh, to get to that point. The organization is seems much healthier now that I can see from the outside, that's much less... Uh, much less over critique and uh, criticism and and there's much more focus on developing athletes as 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 whole human beings not just as a someone who who does the sport but also as a, a teenager a young adult who is developing in many areas of life at the same time and, and and the funny thing is not that's not to say that if you do all these things an organization cannot be destructive because uh, there's many organizations around the world who focus on developing people in a good way people in a a broad way but there can still be destructive features Um, and that's the thing that sometimes good people do bad things and i think Mm -hmm. that's it's it's way too easy it's way 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 too easy to point your finger at one person and say it was a performance director he's a bully she's a bully and now uh, everything is better because they've moved on, and another person has come in. That's a, that is a overly simplistic truism. It's mm-hmm. it's much more complicated than that. It's it's looking at all the relationships and organization, and and how you how you you all these still subcultures in a large national organization with tens of thousands of people who are engaged in it, how they come together, collide, conflict. Uh, find common ground, and that's really where you should work as an, as a cultural architect. Uh, and that's where the talent team in this organization really grew into a, a good role and, and worked in those in those areas.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the story you are telling is, in some ways, a good story or the type of story that we want to hear. Mm. That there has been a conflict and there has been some sort of good resolution and people in that organization are in a better place. Of course the story will continue so this is not like they will their organization will live on and 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 so on. But so there's a shift from this more destructive and very conflict conflicted environment to one that seems to be quite focused on this mental health and well-being of the athletes. This has been a really interesting conversation. I guess for my closing question for this first part of our conversation so you've been involved in this organization for quite a long time and observed and talked to people a lot and i mean when we talk about sport organizations we often talk about creating these winning cultures or more successful cultures and nowadays we also talk a lot about these healthy cultures or the cultures that support well-being but Mm. so I'm curious since the podcast is about meaning and in meaningful work is something that is such a big topic in organizational research outside of sport. So I would just really want to hear your more informal reflections like meaningful work is not the focus and the concept that you have been using. Mm. But I wonder if in your data and your observations, whether this question about whether this is meaningful work is it, is it something that kind of comes up for these people who work in the organization? And whether and how you think this meaningfulness dimension could be something that we might look into in our studies in the in the world of sport organizations and sport work as well.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think I, I just want to, to start with the part about it's a neat story. And right now it is a neat story. It's probably also because I actually don't know what is what's is going on on the ground right now at the coal face
0: mm-hmm.
1: but my contention is that, uh, that there are always elements of uh, destructiveness in any culture I don't think you can 100% brand an organization as fully destructive or fully good um, I think that's too binary uh, there will always be these little destructive features and And there might still be in this organization be these destructive features. But coming back to the the part about meaningful work, if you look at the coaches who were employed at the organization at that time, they had a way about them, a way of doing things, an approach to their craft, if you want to call it that, that they found extremely meaningful. This was a way that had been done, their sport had been done for for decades um they felt felt comfortable doing doing it this way and that was that made a lot of meaning to th- that was a lot of, uh, gave them a lot of meaning in this sport but this how they perceived this encroaching group this outgroup, uh people who represented a shift away from what they found meaningful so they found meaningful all the processes they went through the the way that they had related to athletes in in the past, but now they had to relate to athletes and other people in in a much different way, which made I, I suppose made maybe made them feel unsettled uh, in what was actually meaningful to them. So, and I think that's probably one of the biggest issues that uh, that the very early work in, in changing that culture didn't take into account was a focus on what people found meaningful and because i think the the challenges well the conflict really arose because people they felt like their livelihoods the things that they found meaningful the, the the things that gave their lives purpose um was challenged so that's probably where meaning comes into to the whole conversation
0: yeah yeah that's that's really interesting and hopefully we will see more work in the future also looking at this culture change processes from from that meaning perspective and when meaning is being challenged, how mm. people respond to that and whether and how they might then craft new type of meaning as a response to some of the changes that might be imposed on them. So I think we'll finish up for our first part of the discussion. So thank you so much Niels. It has been really, yeah. really interesting. Yeah. Likewise.